Good morning. Good morning. I know. It's fellowship is sweet, isn't it? You know, fellowship is, um, is sweet and it's a glimpse of heaven. And so, um, I, it's very hard to interrupt the saints when they're enjoying sweet fellowship, but, uh, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for drawing us, uh, here this morning, for giving us life and breath. Most of all, we thank you in Jesus' name for, for saving us from ourselves, uh, saving us from the wrath to come, saving us for, uh, to be heirs and adopting us into your family, into your household. Father, we pray that as we, uh, complete, uh, this study this, uh, morning, that you would be pleased to, uh, give voice to the teacher, ears to us hearers, of your word. And uh, most of all, would you uh, be glorified by what takes place here? And would you plant these seeds in our hearts so that they might blossom into giant oaks of faith and practice? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week in Tim's sermon, he talked about, first of all, let me, let me at least, um, Mention the shirt. (laughs) You guys who are laughing know. I am wearing this uh, in honor of our pastor. His team won this weekend. And you notice he's not, he normally wears a a Tennessee tie when he preaches post win. But my team lost, so I'm honoring his because I'm a glory hog. And the reality is we all are glory hogs to some extent. Okay. So last week's sermon, Tim talked about the importance of us expulsing an idolatrous affection. He talked about replacing anything that our hearts, affections are drawn to that are on the horizontal plane. And he said that the only way to do that is to focus our eyes on what? He said, on Jesus, on that which is unseen. And he he concluded in saying that that's how we change. That's how we make changes in our life. More importantly, that's how Jesus changes us, is by the more that we focus our attentions and our hearts and our affections on Jesus, the more we will grow in maturity, the deeper satisfaction and joy that we will have in becoming what we were created to be. And yet we live in this already but not yet, so there's an enormous tension there, but it's that hope of the fact that that. As we talked about last week, in the life to come, there will be unmitigated joy. Here we get joy here and there. Oftentimes, we impede our own joy by focusing 
here. In fact, I will take it a step further. I'll say we, by focusing on the seen world and things that are seen, on things that are created, we blind ourselves to the beauty and the wonder and and therefore rob ourselves of the joy of knowing the inheritance that's already ours. So we're going to talk about that today and wrap up this series. And quite frankly, that has been the goal from the very start of lesson one. And that was to provide you good reason and sufficient means of picturing heaven, heaven for your soul. And I use the word soul because... You know, we all um, desire for our souls to be satisfied and fulfilled. And the only, only thing, person, that is going to ever fill that, we try it with spouses, children, um, you know, every, you know, every created thing. But the only thing that's going to do it is focusing on the person and work of Jesus and he happens to be our third eyewitness, so we're going to talk about that. So, specifically what we're going to look at today, well, you know, I'm not going to take time for recap, because uh, you can go back and pl- play the tapes, because we've got a, a little bit more territory to cover today. We're going to focus on what Jesus says about mindset, because I know I keep giving this mindset word, and it it can easily sound new agey, it can easily sound self-help type of language. It's, it's borrowed by, from self-help from Scripture. That's what happens in self-help books, is they take a certain amount of truth and they wrap it around a big giant lie, and that's how they push their wares. And um, But we're going to focus on what Jesus says about mindset. We're going to uh, take a look at a few of his kingdom parables and how it relates to what does it look like to have a heavenly mindset? And then we're going to focus specifically on his resurrection, his resurrected body and his ascension, and the importance that all three of those play in our focus on heaven and our the hope that we affix our affections towards. Again, what this whole exercise has been is helping us, teaching us to transfer our affections from the things that we are we see around us and transferring them to the person of Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And uh, we're actually going to sing about that later today. So when we come to um, the song in preparation for God's word, it's, Hear, O Lord... Here, O my Lord, I see thee face to face. And it goes on. Here would I touch and handle things unseen. Here grasp the firmer hand, the eternal grace, and all my weariness upon thee lean. I love it when the Holy Spirit puts these pieces together where worship and Sunday school merge and and the the thread that runs through each is consistent which it just it's always mind-boggling to me to see that but anyway Jesus on mindset 
Mark 8, 27 through 33. You might want to open up your Bibles to that. It's a very familiar passage. Um, we're going to look at a couple of verses uh, today and, and focus more on Scripture than on um, Guy's speculation. Mark 8, 27 reads, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others said, Others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must must suffer things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And and Peter took him aside. Now, Now, think about this for a moment. You know, sometimes we read through Scripture and we just kind of pass over it. But here, Peter's got this mountaintop moment where he is identifying Jesus. He's proclaiming Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Way up here, high mountaintop moment. And then in the next breath, Peter rebukes uh began to rebuke Jesus. I love Peter because we have a lot in common. But Jesus turned, and I know you all remember his words because they they sting, they stick to us. Jesus said to, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. But here's, we all know that. But how many people focus on the following part of that same verse. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So here Jesus is giving us a clear understanding of the importance of mindset. We have Peter who had this mountaintop proclamation of Jesus is the Christ. And then in the next breath is being rebuked. But that's each of us, because what happens? Each of us can, you know, we live in the seen world. We live in this horizontal world. It's the world that we do our best from the moment we are born to learn to master. But it's not the world that we were created for. And so we never really completely master it. And the reality is, is what we should be mastering all along in the whole of Scripture is to help us master what's really important, what will be eternally important in our lives. In his letter to the Hebrews, Paul dedicates chapter 11. I know some people will argue, I think Tim will argue against me that Peter, or that Paul is the author of Hebrews, but that's a different subject. Paul dedicates chapter 11 to describing the vertical mindset that is the faith applied of the Christian Hall of Fame, or what I would call the Hall of Fame alumni. We all know it. Chapter 11 lists out all the different uh, saints 
who are in the, this Hall of Fame, Chapter 11, described describing their faith and how their faith um, saved them. In Hebrews, as he's writing to Hebrews, he writes this in Hebrews 12. Therefore, so now keep in mind, he just finished talking about all of these glorious saints who are who are put in scripture to give us living, breathing examples of what a faith, a life of faith, a life of mindset focused on Christ looks like. And, of course, in chapter 12, he begins with, therefore, therefore, following the fact that we have this giant stadium, so to speak, of of witnesses, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So here, if we unpack that just a little bit, Paul is basically saying we've got these cloud of witnesses. He's already given us a whole chapter of examples of what a life of faith should and can look like and, and, and perfect illustrations of living, breathing people just like you and me. And he uses this word, Lay aside every weight that that prohibits us, that slows us down. He's again using this this athletic metaphor, and we all know that athletes they they train and train and train and train, and they you know the, the old saying is when I was in high school, you know, no pain, no gain, and. And I, you know, there are some people who, you know, especially athletes who compete at the highest of levels, they spend, you know, upwards of eight hours a day doing what? Preparing, training for an event, for a, with a goal in mind. And so Paul is using this and he's saying, lay aside, put, he, he uses common language throughout, uh, his letters of putting off and putting on. Tim mentioned this last week, of putting off the focusing on these things and putting on the focusing of this. But he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't just tell us, put this off and put this on. He tells us how to do it. Let me read it again. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us and let us run with endurance the race that is set it that is set before us looking to Jesus looking to Jesus so here is the pauline recipe for joy in your life this is the pauline recipe for a mature christian life this is the pauline recipe for uh enabling equipping and encouraging you as you uh, to stand fast as you encounter trials and tribulations.
So Paul's race metaphor, or his athletic metaphor, is very fitting for us because basically, I think our greatest sin is passivity. We're, we, you know, I, I will speak for myself because I know a lot about me. I, um, for a great part of my Christian walk, I was happy with having one foot in heaven and one foot in earth. One foot in this world, one foot in the next world. That, but my heart was in serving God and serving Him in a meaningful way. And, and my one foot firmly grounded in this world was blinding me from what laid in, aside for me and in, in store for me, promised to me. It's already mine in heaven. Okay, we'll do one more point on mindset, and then we'll move on. Um, in his letter to the Colossian church, which is interesting, the Colossian church held a false notion of, uh, of heavenly reality. They had a false notion of what that was. And ironically, that leads them to fruitless efforts on the earthly plane. So even when you want to even when you want to master this, it becomes fruitless if you are not mastering this. If you're not focusing on things above, even your greatest efforts towards mastering this is going to come up short. Why do you think athletes, professional athletes and movie stars, when they reach the peak of their wealth and fortune, turn to drugs, and all these other aberrant things. Because they're disappointed, because the idol that they pursued, that they strived for, never delivered. It promised, delivered a little here and there, but did not deliver. Fruitful living in the here and the now begins rather with a right understanding of heavenly reality. That's the whole purpose of this class. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Look at the words here. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. You know, each one of these two verses, Tim could do a complete sermon series on. Um, we can spend all of our time just unpacking these verses, and probably accomplish the same thing that I'm doing with giving you the summary. One of the things that has frustrated me is just to do all this stuff. I can't do it. I have no ability in and of myself to do it. Yet, throughout the New Testament, I'm commanded to do that. Hmm? It's only the Holy Spirit that enables me to do that. 
talk to me like I have the ability to on my own. So all you know, you need Paul, you know, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. I can't do it. Neither could Paul. You know, Neither could Paul. That's why Paul yeah. So why, why are you yelling at me to do something I can't do? <laughs> you want to know why? I'm gonna tell you. I'm gonna tell you and I'm gonna tell you in a louder voice. Because you need Jesus. And I need Jesus. And the more we look at things that we're called to do that we don't do, that's what the law does. It shines a mirror and shows us we need Jesus. But you're telling me again what I need to do. And I'm telling you, I can't do it. Okay. I can't even call out to him. Because he has to enable me to do that. It's all about him. One second. No, you're not. You're not. You're not. Uh, and, and keep in mind, I started out with Jesus is our the author and the perfecter of our faith. I didn't say he was just one or just the other. He is the author. He's the one who gives you the faith and he's the one who finishes it. But we are still, as Tim said, we are still responsible for how we respond. Mark. You know, I think everyone here in varying degrees gets the gospel. The challenge that I've seen in my life is what weight do I put? See, our mind is constantly putting, has a scale. And we're, we're weighing things that we see versus things that we don't see. And guess what? If we don't preoccupy ourselves with things unseen, this is going to win. See, the battle, it, Ralph, you're right. The battle is inside. The battle is inside. I've seen the, the enemy, and the enemy is me. But guess what? There's hope. And the more that we focus on that hope, the less um, power the enemy has over my mind, my affections, and my actions. Because my mind... And my affections drive my actions. Like it or not, we are driven by our actions. We're driven by our motives. <laughs> well, as the great Hannibal Lecter said, I like it when a plan comes together. 
Lord still troubles me. My sanctification, is that my work? Or is it the Holy Spirit's work? That's the next Sunday. That's next Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> Ralph, you have a don't worry about it, get out of jail free card from Pastor Tim. <laughs> All right, I, you know, we're going to have to move on uh, if you want to finish this week. So um, let's, let's talk about a little bit about uh, Jesus uh, from a different perspective. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, I've already said the author and perfecter or author and finisher Hebrews, we already talked about, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So think about this for a moment. What is the joy that was set before him? Because, pardon me? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That He had a joy that his mind was set on. And what did that do for him? That gave him the ability to endure and to persevere and to not let what circumstances he was finding himself in, I know we're talking about Jesus, but the circumstances finding himself in not affect his countenance. And see, my point is, is as we grow in faith, our countenance does not need to go down as our circumstances become challenging. And that becomes the, the whole point. But let's take a look at this. Exactly. Good point. Good point. And, and, and in, in my own life, I started to see that God was allowing me to suffer, not just for my sake, but as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for the sake of everyone else who's praying for me so that they might share in the grace that I enjoy when God answers the prayer that they've been praying for me. And that's why we were created for community, whole different class. But think about this. Again, Jesus, the, the author and perfecter of our faith, there's a joy that was set before him. And this joy is the greatest labor of love. There's no greater labor of love. We can, you know, we could, and we will spend eternity talking about that love. But the greatest labor of love that ever happened that was possible because Jesus pursued the greatest unimaginable joy. And that namely, we've already talked about it, is the joy of being exalted to God's right hand in the assembly of his people 
for the joy that was set before him. And what Paul's basically saying here is that he's giving us another example, like Hebrews 11, where we have all of these people of faith who were who were focused on things that are unseen. They were eager and confident in the joy that God offers. Enough that they would re, that they rejected the things, the fleeting pleasures of sin. They rejected that. They rejected things, the circumstances they were in from having the ability to steal their joy and rob their joy, having the ability to remove, to lower their countenance. The joy in which Jesus set his face like flint towards the joy of leading many sons to glory, which is in Hebrews 2.10. His joy was in our redemption, which redounds to God's glory as we share in the joy that Jesus, the joy with Jesus, while God gets the glory. I mean, God's economy is... I only wish I had Lois's. Where's Lois's? Lois, there she is. You're right here in front of me. Her mathematical mind. She got a great mathematical mind. And I'm convinced the, the more mathematical your mind is, the more appreciation you can have for God's economy. And I'm not talking about accounting. I'm talking about how everything is put together in such a beautiful fashion. Not you know, when we get to heaven, we're not going to see anything that has a flaw. We're not going to see anything that is broken or torn or worn. There won't, you know, what, what boggles my mind? You know, I'm, a, I'm an engineer by trade. The law of thermodynamics is going to be reversed. That is the law that all things are atrophying and dying. Reversed. You have to have eyes that are focused on the unseen to take that because my scientific mind that tries to put things together doesn't. But in heaven, it'll all come together. All right, we're going to pass over the parables, but Jesus does give us a couple of parables. Um, uh, in Matthew 13, parables on the kingdom that again show us what a life of faith looks like, a life of having a mindset that's focused on things above rather than things on earth. He gives us two examples. I won't go into them other than just to mention the pearl. He mentions the, 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 the merchant who finds the pearl of great price and sells everything he has to own it. And then also the person who finds the field. And, and sells all of his possessions to be able to own it. And I know I've abused both of those passages, but my point is this. Until Jesus is my treasure, until Jesus is my treasure, 24-7, I'm going to struggle just as what Ralph just described. And guess what? Every one of us do. But I'm learning. 
I'm learning. I started this off by saying that there was a point in my Christian walk, even as an elder, that I had one foot in each. And I still do. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm moving more to the, more to, to being firmly planted in where, where I'm already seated. And that is in heaven. The point of the parable again be, is where is your heart? Where are the affections of your heart? Are they here? Now, Ralph, I'll drive it home. I couldn't. But God could. So you know what God did? He removed all the things that precluded me from having him my treasure. He removed them. I couldn't. I didn't want to. I can't say I I suffered and let everything go that was important to me. No, God took everything from me that I valued, that I gave more weight to. But thanks be to God that he did, because at that point in time, Jesus became my treasure. Okay. Okay. Sorry, Siri. We'll turn you off now. I was just looking for the time. All right, let's move on towards Jesus' resurrection, and I, I'll have to be a little bit brief on this. I'm, I'm basically going to cover three things about Jesus' resurrection. One, that he had a bodily resurrection. Kind of important to, to state that. Two, that he had, the, he had a first fruits resurrection. And thirdly, that in Jesus, believers are already spiritually resurrected. Okay, so I'm going to cover each of these rather quickly and, and, um, again, trying to give you enough, uh, purpose to understand the importance of having a vertical mindset, but also the means for, of getting there. So the, his bodily resurrection. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't leave his body behind. After his resurrection in John uh, 20, 27, he ate fish. His body ascended into heavens, Acts 1, 9. And he will bodily come again, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. So he, he had a bodily resurrection, and that's important to us, and I'll tell you why. Because he had a first fruits resurrection as well of our resurrection. Paul describes Jesus' resurrection as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And we find that in 1 Corinthians 15:20. As you know, first fruits is an agricultural metaphor. It kind of escapes us in, in today's day and age because we're not farmers. Certainly not here in the desert, we're not farmers. And but First fruits uh, to an agricultural society, as in the first readers of this text, they understood. I mean, what part of worship do we use that's always referred in the Bible as first fruits? The offering. Our offering is a first fruits. We're, we are to take one tenth of what God provides us and trusts us with. 
It's a first fruits of the other 90% that is to come. The, re- the, the requirement for Israel to tithe was to recognize the very first 10% of your crop that you were donate, that you were donating to the chief, to the priests, that you were uh, bringing as your offering to the Lord. You were trusting that the other 90% would be as good as the first. Now, that kind of escapes us today, but the point that Paul is making here is just as Jesus, his body was resurrected, that was a sign of the first, that was a first fruit of our resurrection. Just as the the 90% of the crop that would come behind the 10% was fruit of the of the farmer the fruit of god in heaven is that just as jesus was resurrected that is a promise a down payment that we too will be resurrected our heaven our bodies will be resurrected thirdly jesus in jesus believers are spiritually resurrected The resurrection not only is a future event for for believers, those who believe in Christ, but those who believe in Christ have already been raised. Scripture tells us we've already been raised with him. Paul writes this in in Colossians 3.1, which is before the passage I, I read earlier. It says, if then you've been raised with Christ... Think about things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So again, Paul is saying, we have been already raised. Not we're going to be raised. We've already been raised. You and I are seated in the heavenlies spiritually. We're seated there spiritually because of a word that, that Paul uses throughout his epistles, and it's called union with Christ. And it was his resurrection that bought our union with him because it purchased it, because not only did it pay for our sins, but it paved the way for the Holy Spirit to not only raise him, but to raise us, to indwell us, to be put place inside of us as a first fruits, as a down payment, as a guarantee that everything that's Jesus is yours because of your by virtue of your union with him. Think about this for a moment. You're never more resurrected than you are today. Because it says it happened already. Guess what? If you're a believer, it not only happened already, but you can't undo it. I don't know about you, but there are times where I'm really, really grateful that I can't, as messed as I am up, I can't undo it. So the resurrection is an already but not yet reality for the Christian because of our union with Christ. And because of that, we can await 
the full experience of the resurrection to come. Lastly, and I'll wrap up with this, Jesus' ascension. I'm just going to give you one sentence. It's much more than a postscript to the resurrection. It's the return of the king to his throne. I take great comfort in knowing that the one who created everything that is, who also created me, is seated at the right hand of the Father today. And you should too. When we sin, we're just acting like we've forgotten that. And we have. Paul Tripp says, you know, we have gospel amnesia. We forget that he is sitting and reigning on the throne. You know, we have lost sight of all so much of meaning, what it means to live in a monarchy where you have a monarch who is sovereign, not just over the land, but over all of creation, over heaven and earth. All right. So last week, and I, uh, Tim preached on seeing Jesus changes us. On the moment that you and I pass from this life to the next, we will see Jesus as he is. Now, I told you uh, that we kept, it, it was hard to keep this from, from talking too much about this. But seeing Jesus as he is, through eyes that are not sin, sinful eyes, through a, there's no sin filter when I'm in heaven and you're in heaven. You're going to see him and everything that has ever happened in your life is have no meaning whatsoever. It will carry zero weight. Right now, you came in today, you've got burdens, I've got burdens, we, we carry weights, we're burdened down. The moment at the twinkling of an eye, you're going to gaze into the face of your creator, the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross so that you don't have to. He endured God's wrath so you don't have to. And the more you and I focus on that, the more Jesus becomes our treasure. And the more Jesus becomes our treasure, we start giving more power to this vertical mindset, this joy that is set before us. So for the joy that's set before us, let's put off our focus on things that are horizontal. Let's no longer give them the meaning that we've given them in the past. And let us have a laser focus on the author and the perfecter of our faith who is seated at the right hand of the Father at the throne, who has paved the way for us, who enables us and empowers us day by day, who sanctifies us day by day as we continue to become more like him one degree at a time. Let's pray.
Father God, it's impossible to do justice to the um, to what your word has to say in, in just one of these passages that we've used today. And we've used many. I pray that your word, that you've promised that it will not return void, will set deeply in our hearts and change us. I pray that because that was Paul's prayer. prayer Paul's prayer for the churches that he wrote letters to was that they would grow into full maturity. I pray that for me and for everyone here, that we might, you might enable and equip each of us to treasure you more and treasure the things of this world less, and in doing so that you would receive the glory and the honor. Now, Father, as we, um, as we head to worship, we pray that you'd be with us, that you'd try, that you'd be working on our hearts even now, preparing us to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that you would be with our pastor as he preaches your word. We pray that you would be with our music team and all who are involved in the process of worshiping you. And we pray that this, that which takes place will give you great glory. And we pray it in your name. Amen.